With more than three decades of supply chain and digital transformation experience at Procter & Gamble and General Electric, Mark Dorfmuller talks with Tracelink's Roddy Martin about the importance of operational resilience. Mark, welcome to our Tracelink Thought Leader Series. Um, I really look forward to this discussion with you. Procter & Gamble, is, as you well know, is rates very high uh, in my best practices uh, database. Uh, in every sense, simply because the transformations that PNG brought about 10 years ago, uh, many companies are still trying to figure out. And I think the secret sauce was the way that PNG looked so holistic uh, and comprehensive, uh, uh, comprehensively at all the changes. There weren't technology projects disconnected from people projects disconnected from, and I'm not saying the world was perfect. But I think you were streets ahead of, of many of the other transformation efforts I've seen. So in particular, what I'd really like to focus on is Agile's back in vogue, right? And, and there's obviously the side of Agile that says we can do software development in an Agile way, but we can also do lean and supply chain and manufacturing in an agile way. And, and that's more a focus on resilience of business operations. So one of the changes that, that uh, P&G really spearheaded in the industry was flipping from supply centric to shopper centric, demand driven, uh, making sure that, and that's not a trivial transformation. The systems weren't set up to be demand-driven, the infrastructure wasn't. So what I'd really appreciate is for you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how PNG thought about the enterprise architecture view of this massive transformation, because without the enterprise architecture, this just simply wouldn't be possible. So welcome, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Roddy. Um, just, a, I guess, a short introduction of myself. I spent um, almost eight years at General Electric and then another almost 30 years at, at Procter & Gamble. And um, I've served in a lot of different roles and capacities in, in that role, including enterprise architecture. But I've spent probably 20 years against supply chain and worked in telecommunications and globally running all of uh, their voice, video, and data. So I've had quite a deep technology kind of view of things um, and a very specific business capabilities view of things. And at one point I was even um, the business architect for, for the company trying to work through uh, the, the challenge of how do we take our big ideas to market faster, uh, where it was taking us quite a number of years to be able to roll something out globally, we needed to cut that in half. To, to your question about, um, Agility. I, I think you know the the way I think about agility today is, and many large enterprises are really stuck in the same problem. Still, they have now put in fifty years of of uh, systems of record, if you will, that are built around ERP types of systems that are still operating in a nineteen sixties or seventy mode, meaning that they're still operating overnight, you know, daily, weekly, monthly kind of cycles where your business in many cases is operating at a much faster cycle. So many companies have shifted to e-commerce and more and more of their businesses in that space. And yet they're still trying to operate off of 
supply chain planning systems in, in particular, who, which have really been built in a, in a totally different way. I mean, they're built for batch, basically. They're, not still, they're really not built for real-time, responsive, agile systems. And companies are acquiring more and more businesses. And those businesses are not operating back in the batch modes. They're operating really in the, you know, the 2020, you know, in the 21st century here and, and being able to respond to the cadence of business with not only your systems, but your processes is an important aspect of agility. And not all of your businesses need to operate real time, but many of them do. And you've not, you need to have systems that um, both from a technology standpoint, but a business process standpoint as well, that can adjust to whatever the cadence of that internal business is, you know, internal or external. All of that, you know, has to really be designed in a way that's first, you know, focusing on, uh, you know, the consumer, whoever that consumer is, you know, you talked about in our dialogue earlier, we were talking about the patient being the, the consumer and some of the supply chains that you're working with. Well, that's your consumer in that case. So what does it look like when you're talking about patient, you know, as the shopper, you know, metaphor, sort of the translation, how do you talk about that? And then think about the event to patient to treatment as a value stream versus consumer point of sale back to really manufacturing and to be able to build an agile system and a resilient system in that in that manner is is really you know a challenge with some of the building blocks that are still being offered to most companies Right. And you know, um, Mark, one of the points, uh, I don't know if you know Mike Whitman, but Mike Whitman comes from P&G, uh, from his J&J days. And I had him on a Logi Pharma panel and he used to run the Tylenol operation at McNeil at J&J. And he said, you know, we did a cig back of the cigarette box calculation one day at McNeil and we came up with the fact that there were 500,000 potential failure points on a medium-sized manufacturing operation. Mm -hmm. So for an architect, that's a nightmare, right? I mean, you, there's no ways that you can build every possible scenario around 500,000 failure points. And, and that's really, I think, what makes a successful enterprise architect at business level or not, right? You can get mired in the detail and lost in very complicated stuff. Or you can take a very pragmatic business point of view and say, let's do some sort of analysis and find out where are likely to be the biggest fires that we need to deal with fast, right? So a, yeah. a COVID scenario or a, an API supplier, ingredient supplier, how do you get the business to think along those lines? What's I know there's no magic sauce, but but are there any secret things that you found really worked to get the business thinking along the right lines? Uh, you have to take advantage of you know, Roddy, the the situations that that are going to occur. So, uh, one of the opportunities we had was you know there was an incident. It was a fairly big one, caused us to have to start to reevaluate the resilience of of our business uh, and all the capabilities. But the first question was, what are the critical business capabilities that we have within um, in PNG? And and I don't think that question had really been asked from that standpoint. It was always asked prior to that, 
what are the IT systems I need to have up to keep me running? And business criticality was really spent or really defined around the applications, not around the business process. And so as a part of that incident, we really rethought um, and redefined everything around the business capabilities that we needed to keep running. So being able to take an order from a, from a customer was considered a critical business capability, it's sort of natural, right? I mean, right. you really never, you know, you should never be in a position not to take an order from, from your customer was the rationale. So, so we basically said, okay, we need to be able to take orders, we need to be able to produce product, and we need to be able to ship it to the customer so that it can be sold to our consumers. We need to be able to then receive invoices and make payments to our suppliers. And we need to manage all the master data. So there was a number of things around financial uh, that we had defined as, as critical. And then finally, there were some things around human capital, if you will, that we needed to make sure that you can pay your employees, that you can make sure your shareholders can still execute um, stock you know, transactions that they may need to do, uh, and uh, that your retirees are supported. So with hundreds of business capabilities, we narrowed it down to 10. Then we looked at what are the process fail points, what are the um, systems fail points, you know, single points of failure that you might get into, and, and what are all of the, you know, things that you might have to go fix in that case. And, and from there, it really wasn't all systems. It was as much, right. what's your supplier? What's your materials? You know, do you have single points of failure there? Any one of those things out of those 10 capabilities would mean our business could not run. You know what I love about that is the simplicity of it, right? I mean, one, one of the challenges I found in my architecture role, and you and I have spoken about this quite a few times, and that is, you know, I would have the board of directors say, Roddy, I want you to go and do your enterprise architecture stuff, but keep those people out of the room because they confuse us, right? And, and I think, unfortunately, I see too many cases where enterprise architecture has turned into a lab experiment and there's realms and realms of documents and specifications and the business says, look, just get on with it and, and make it work. And I, what, what struck me as you were telling the story is, hey, let's boil this. This business is not that difficult. Someone takes an order, someone makes a product, someone ships a product. Let's not overcomplicate it because I'd rather us look at the business in a simple way and identify our risks because we're more likely to see the risks than if we start breaking it down into 500,000 failure points and, and it, it's just going to turn into something that kills itself under its own weight. So, and, and, and I think, so what role did, and, and I know this is an obvious question for you, but what role did the business play in that? Because I also think that sadly, IT runs off into a corner, and this is not an anti-IT discussion, but IT runs off into the corner and comes up with these big plans that confuse the business. What role did the business play in those discussions? It was a very, that's a very important one because we, we worked with the supply chain chief officer, the our HR uh, chief officer, and our finance chief officer, who, whom happened to be 
the three people who are on our business continuity team when any incident would occur. They're the guys who actually call the shots when, when something happens. So we use them as the sounding board on which capabilities were the most critical. Because you can imagine everyone wants to be included in my business, you know, my part of the business is critical too. So they wanted money to be able to do whatever enhancements they want. They were the ones who got to say, these are the capabilities we care about. And these are the then processes we, you know, we want you to work on and make sure that all the IT and the business process capability that, you know, from a process standpoint, all of those single points of failure are really shorn up. And so we identified in that scenario, it, was, it still ended up being quite a bit. I mean, there were over 300 points of failure uh, that we had to deal with uh, and, and just on the IT side. And they had some things on the business process side that they had to, to also correct. But that was, that was how we went about it. And they were our sounding board. They were the, the team that would make the decision. Because ultimately, if there was an incident, they had to deal with it. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, you can't, you can't prepare all of this for them and then expect them to react in a scenario and say, but hang on, this is not what I would have done, right? So, so what, what you've actually done is crystallize their mindsets around the scenarios that you could codify and said, let's build this into this con business continuity scenario so that when you have to flick switches, you're probably going to flick the switches that we'd all spoken about because we hopefully got it like 90% right. And where we got it a little wrong, it's much easier to do the 10%. So, so I think the, the, the point is a best practice, right? And that is that you cannot do this in isolation of the most senior business leadership that's going to have to respond in a business continuity crisis scenario. Because if you do, there's a good chance you're going to get it wrong. We did one other thing too, Roddy, which was in, in that scenario. So, so we did a lot of work on really resilience, if you will, where resilience was defined as the ability to operate and never go down. So this wasn't about disaster recovery. This was about operational resilience. I don't want to have to execute a disaster recovery plan. Not that we didn't right. have those, but it was, we want, the investments weren't even on DR. We had a lot of DR. So we said, okay, keep that part going. But what we want to really focus on is I don't ever want to go down. You know, what do I need to do to ensure that? And will my systems and my processes be able to support that? And when you get into that, then, then it becomes a an, an, an more interesting question. And many of today's, I'll call it systems of record, really are not designed to be resilient. Right. So, well, you know, and I know it's an unfair question to you, and I'm not asking you to name companies, but I mean, do you see... Do you see anything's really changed in the last 10 years in the, you know, companies that you work for with C, et cetera? Do you see anything changing? Because I seriously have not seen people stick their heads out and say, I got this, right? Why is it that I have to use PNG for 10 years as the only best practice example? You've got to see other things happening. Do you or don't you? Well, I think Amazon and, and, uh, was, sure. Yeah. They, I mean, there are a couple others that are masters now and in supply chain in particular, but, um, we, we, when you, when you looked at process resilience, Roddy, it, it, it may be, you know, the, 
the love for the business that PNG PNG people feel they are part of the business that they are the business. And so when, whether it was keeping an IT system resilient or whether it was keeping a line on a manufacturing floor, uh, we called it process reliability, but it was really keeping that line up and running, you know, so that you had very few outages and downtimes where you're now putting in MES systems that are measuring microseconds, you know, of, of jams and, and, and small variations in fill weights. Just a real attention to detail to drive value for the business. And that was usually a combination, even, even on the factory floor, it wasn't the, just the engineers, it was information was important. So it was a collaboration between IT and our engineering uh, organization to be able to collect the data, to be able to analyze, to be able to fi find the faults that were there and then be able to build business cases to correct those process resilience issues on the line. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever watched the video, a very famous uh, uh, London School of Economics Indian professor who did a video, which, and you just have to Google the smell of this place. It's a fascinating video to watch. But he talks about some of the Indian cities in the summertime when, when there is a real smell to the place, right? And he says, isn't it funny that you can walk into a company and you immediately get the smell of this place. And what you just triggered in my mind is the smell of PNG. People are at home caring about the business as they are about their jobs, as they are about their products. And that is an epitome of PNG. I mean, that is what stands out for me as the, the absolute shining example and why PNG is such a good caring supply chain organization. Yep, and we, you know, it, it was not uncommon for any one PNG person to know 3,000 people within the company on it. You know, it's a company of about 100,000, but 3,000 people, and they're not in they're not in one function. They're in finance. They're in engineering because we always work together to really solve the problems, regardless of what function expertise was needed to be able to do that. And very right. collaborative love the business, you know, and they really see their job as helping consumers' lives be better, you know, so you see the value in that. So, so I'm going to just mention a, um, a, a, an example of where I sat in the, the annual reviews of projects that, uh, that PNG did, just to make a point of how integrated it was, just to illustrate the point. And then I'm going to ask you, uh, it's been a really great uh, um, session with you, just to highlight the one piece of advice you would give uh, you know, some young supply chain professional who's been tasked to, let's come up with a blueprint plan. So we're going to get to that. But let me first make this point that every year I was invited to attend the PNG project review. And I tell everybody the thing that absolutely stood out was you'd have a project leader, some IT folks, some business process folks, uh, and some, you know, HR related folks. And they talk about what NOS this project added to PNG, not whether the project was finished on time and budget, what did it actually do for the business? So, so, you know, and that's an absolute deal breaker in some companies because IT projects are somewhere over there and people projects are somewhere over here and this process changes, but they don't seem to be bring it, bring it together. So, I mean, 
What comment would you make along those lines? And then secondly, go straight into what's the one piece of nugget advice you would say to somebody on how to think about, you know, I got to build agility. Here's how you need to think about the journey that you're going to take, because this is not possible to do overnight. For the younger person coming into this, I think one of the things that I would really want them to understand is focus on the business capabilities that your company has. And I don't mean that in a general sense. I mean, if, if you don't know what those capabilities are and what those value streams really look like and who's running each one of those processes and how they are connected, you've got some work to do. Right. So for example, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. So for example, launching a new product or uh, acquiring a new product in a, in another geography. Those are examples of capabilities, right? Those are capabilities, but they're just the, you know, they're one. Tip of the iceberg, right? They're tip of the iceberg. So, you know, in, in, in uh, the work that I did when on trying to take big ideas to market, uh, the company knew, everybody knew, you know, you need marketing, you need brand, you need product support, you know, the innovation R and D layers and the product supply. And then, the customer, they knew it at that level. And down deeper, they each one knew their piece of the work that would take them, you know, that idea and get it out to the market. But nobody had actually taken the time to map out and understand what are the capabilities end to end from the idea generation all the way out to the customer. And, you know, what does that take? You know, what does that look like? And then where are the problems in there that are really causing us to take so long to get our big ideas out in the market? You need to have that big view so that you can focus in on the few things. There happen to be like 40-something processes involved in taking a big idea to, to market. But there were only seven of them that really were causing the biggest challenge for Procter & Gamble to get them out to market faster. So, so those were ending, ended up being the, the, the ones that we focused on. The second part of this, Roddy, that I would say is understand the problem. Don't, don't focus on the solution. Focus on the problem first and get it defined. Make sure that, it, it, that the, you, you have a good definition of the problem, you're working with your executives to understand that, and that you're focusing on the outcome that you want. So it should always have business outcomes, whether that's NOS or cost savings or productivity, you know, whatever it might be, but make sure it has a business outcome. And yeah, I think that's a, that is a very good piece of advice because I do think uh, that we're so heavily biased towards buying a solution system. You know, let's go and buy an ERP system or let's go and buy a planning system. And, and we then become focused on making that system work, not defining the problem that we're actually trying to solve. So, I mean, I think that that's a really great piece of advice. As simple as what it may be, uh, I, I really don't, unfortunately, hear a lot of people talk in that language. There's, there's teams all over the business looking for new solutions, but not necessarily teams working with the business to really clearly define the problems and the capabilities the business has to build to yeah. be agile under these disruptive scenarios. Well, in many cases, I've even seen with all the focus on startups in you know, the past 10 years, Many times people are saying, hey, here's a startup. What problem can I solve with it? Right. right. <laughs> you don't want to start there. You really want to start with what's your business problem? 
and, uh, and, and then really apply it and understand what you already have in that space. So if you understand the problem, that problem's up against the business capability, what do you have in that space? What problem are you really trying to solve and what do you need new to be able to do that? Mark, on, on that note, it's really a privilege to have you once again and to talk to you once again and have you on this Thought Leadership Series. series. There are quite a few, you know, XPNG people scattered around like Alessandra DeLuca and Jake Barr and, and others. So uh, there is a, a good handful of PNG experience embedded into the series, but it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you once again for the time. Hey, thank you, Roddy.